Ladies and gentlemen, very warm welcome to, uh, to this evening's uh, event um, in the uh, latest public lecture in the LSE European Institute's um, internationally renowned Perspectives on Europe public lecture series. Um, I think you probably know, you should know, that the LSE... Um, the, the LSE's long-standing engagement with France, intellectually, politically, and at the levels of student, student recruitment, faculty exchange, um, that long-standing engagement with France is one of the LSE's proudest boasts. And uh, in welcoming Michel Vivoca to LSE today, LSE is truly fulfilling its self-appointed mission. Now, Michel Vievoca is, um, well, surely one of, one of the most renowned um, sociologists and public intellectuals um, in France and abroad. He received a lot of media, internet, international media attention um, as, a, as an expert analyst following the 2005 civil unrest in France. And in 2006, he was elected... Um, the president of the International Sociological Association, a role he performed until 2010. Together with Alain Touraine and François Dubé, Michel Vievoca developed the method of intervention sociologique and deployed it in the study of militant social movements, in particular French anti-nuclear activism and student leagues, but also the famous trade union movement Solidarność in Poland. Um, as I understand it, I'm not a sociologist, but I've tried to understand it, Intervention Sociologique aims to understand the subjective rationale of actors in the context of larger social movements and conflicts, such as terrorism and racism, anti-system anti -system movements of all different colors and stripes. And this concept um, was diametrically opposed to repeated attempts to establish a strict rational choice approach in French sociology, which never really took up. Now, Michel Vievoca is professor at the École des de Hautes Études en Sciences Sociales, where he is director of the Centre d'Analyse d'intervention sociologique, which was established by Alain Touraine in 1981. And I should also mention that Michel Vievoca is president of the Fondation Maison des Sciences de l'Homme. So I hope we can all agree that his credentials for speaking at LSE this evening are really pretty, pretty strong ones. So having hopefully whetted uh, your appetite for our speaker's words of wisdom. Not that they needed wetting, I am sure. You all come spontaneously when you heard about this public lecture, and um, which I know we're all much looking forward to. And so um, I will ask um, Michel to come and take the floor now, and then after he's spoken for a while, perhaps 35, 40 minutes, um, in time-honored fashion, of course, we will subject him to some pretty rigorous questioning. And um, much look forward to that. So, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure we'll want to welcome Michel Vieux.
So I was thanking Maurice Fraser. I was. I want also to thank my good friend Craig Callon, your pre- your director, and my good friend Anne Corbett, who is here also. Excuse me, my voice is uh, lost. I will try to to speak as clearly as possible. Uh, as you know, my country has been uh, facing evil. It's not a European drama. It should be a European drama, but it is, for, first of all, a French drama. So I have a feeling that uh, today what I prepared three months ago uh, could be useful in order to understand what is at stake just now. So, Europe Facing Evil is the title that I proposed before. And what I would like to do tonight <coughs> is to show you how in the early 80s something awful appeared in Europe. Evil either appeared, either reappeared, either became a new, uh, became transformed and appeared in a new way, different from the past. So what I would like to show you is that if you take four different forms of evil, that is to say, racism, anti-Semitism, terrorism, nationalism, if you take these four expressions of evil, they both were transformed or reappearing in the early 80s, which is very strange. I discovered this recently, and for me it was a shock. So, I want to deal with Europe, but of course I will deal with countries also. Initially, the construction of Europe was made of humanist convictions. The idea was to prevent countries, nations, from killing each other. And the idea was to bring them as close as possible to make impossible any war and any barbarism. And the idea of the founders of Europe was to proceed step by step and to start by implementing economic integration. This is why the first important creation was the European Coal and Steel Community in 1951 with six countries. Then Europe was enlarged, strengthened, and became not only an economic union, but also a monetary union, not for all countries, as we all know when we arrive in Britain, with the euro, and also with various treaties, there was something like a beginning of a political structure. But today, I will not speak too much about this. The economy seems to be diverging from the founding values. And <clears throat> the political project, if any project exists as far uh, today, is not really clear. Many people consider Europe as a kind of technocratic, much more than democratic experience. Today, <coughs> Europe has a concern for moral values, this is true, but it is difficult to say that economics is as a service of ethics or political morals. It's very difficult to say that. So, what I want to say is that if Europe does not take seriously a certain number of issues, and this is what I'm going to try and show now, it will be less and less possible to believe in the European idea. 
racism, anti-Semitism, terrorism, nationalism, I will try to think globally. In the word of the late Ulrich Beck, I wanted to say his name here today, I will be far from what he criticized a lot, methodological nationalism, I will try to have a more global perspective. So my first point will be racism in Europe. It's clear. We passed in Europe from what we can call, call classical racism to what have been called, including in this country by Barber, a new racism. The old physical, biological, colonial racism has not totally disappeared, but it has considerably declined. Declined, not disappeared. In my country, we have a black minister, a woman, Mrs. Tobira, who has been treated like as a monkey. And in Italy, some minister also had exactly the same uh, thing to, to face, which means that also this very old racism can go hand by hand with uh, sexism, because it's women in these two political cases. During the years that followed the Second World War in Europe, <coughs> the classical form of uh, racism were not so important in the political life of a certain number of countries, because in these countries you had a lot of foreigners, of migrant workers, but these migrant workers were not really part of the society. England is a little bit different, excuse me, from other countries because of the Commonwealth. So I'm speaking much more of France, my country, but also Germany, Belgium, I mean, this part of Europe at the beginning. So at that time, we did not have... <coughs> people that were totally citizens, that were living in the society or were supposed to become citizens. We had migrant workers that could be victims of racism. And what I want to say here is that racism, when it existed at the time, was mainly devoted to inferiorize these people. These people were here to be exploited, to work. And in order to exploit them, more easily, racism was a kind of tool that was. So, but these people did not belong to the cultural or the political life of the French society or the German society. They were Gastarbeiter in, in Germany. So these people were victims of a classical racism which was inferiorizing them, exploiting them. It was not what happened after in the early 80s which was called new racism. Some people called it neo-racism. Some other people call it cultural racism. Some other people call it differentialist racism. All these new expressions appeared in the early 80s in order to say now racism is not made to inferiorize people in name of the color of their skin, but much more it is made to expel them to say, I don't want to see you, it is made in order to, uh, to say that they are a threat to the values of the country. That is to say, 
classical racism until the 60s, 70s, used to say, come in my country and I will, I will exploit you because you are under me. The new racism say, you are in my country, you are a threat, you are a danger, you are a cultural danger because you don't share the values of my country. You will never, never accept really well, the values of my country. So, the classical racism was inferiorizing people. The new racism is differentiating them and is telling them, go away, I don't want to see you, something like that. You are a threat for me. Which means that the classical racism was not opposed to the building of an open society. The new racism says, my nation, my values, and it is the contrary of an open society. So this was the change which began to appear in the early uh, 80s. Even if, at the time, the European construction tried to fight against racism and tried to make it illegal, to make it impossible, as much as possible. But it did not work always. But this had a consequence. If racism was different, and if it was, and if there were anti-racism campaigns, battles, and so on, at the national level and at the European level, this had for con uh, the consequence of this was that racism became more and more indirect. Some people would say systemic. Some people would say institutional. That is to say, nobody is racist, but the result is discrimination. Nobody is racist, but I cannot get a job. I cannot get a flat in a, a social uh, housing and, and, and so on. Some people use the, the word veiled, veiled racism to, to describe this. So this phenomenon started in England, in Germany, in France, and they went from the north to the south, to Italy, to Spain, to Portugal, to Greece, that is to say, to countries that in the past, in the recent past, were countries where people used to emigrate, but that were being transformed into people, countries where people used to migrate, to become, be, they, this country, Italy, Spain, and so, so, were countries where many migrants used to come from. Now there were countries where many migrants used to go in the 80s and in the 90s. So racism changed a lot in the 80s and in the 90s. But this is not the end of the process. Then, in the 90s and after that, migration was still a process. Many newcomers were arriving. And many of the newcomers were Muslims. Not all of them, of course. But many of them were Muslims. And as some of the previous waves of migrants were also Muslims, then it appeared that in Europe you had a huge number of Muslims, that Islam was becoming a religion in uh, many countries of Europe. And this was true not only because migrants from the previous generations or new migrants were Muslim, but this was true also because of conversions. And this is a very important phenomenon, even if it is not so many people that convert from Christianism to Islam.
It's difficult to know how many people converted, but some people say 15,000 in France, just to give you an idea. And it must not be so different in Germany, I don't know, in Belgium for sure, and maybe in Spain and so Conversions. It is important because this means that the transformation in the structure of the religious uh, phenomenon in, a, in, in Europe are not only connected with migrants. So if you take this phenomenon and if you look at what happened in the last 15 years or less, but let's say in the last 15 years, you understand that on the one hand, the question of migration and the question of Islam were amalgamated for many people, not so far, one from the other one, and that they were connected with big fears because it was a time when terrorism can, uh, I will say, I will explain that a little bit later, connected with Islam. Terrorist attack uh, 9-11, but also Madrid, March 2004, London 2005, and my poor country very recently, and not only very uh, recently. So what happened is that, uh, that Islam became a, became a target for racist people. But Islam is a religion. You cannot say that it is a culture, even if there are some connections. And you cannot say that when you define somebody by his or her religion, you define this person with the idea of race. So what happened is that there was a kind of mixture of xenophobia, anti-religious feelings, and pure racism. I don't know how to call this but which defined more and more hatred towards those people that, for instance, in my country could, could, could be called one day Arabs, another day Muslim, uh, another day migrants. It was always the same person. So it was not a pure concept of racism that you, that you, that you, that you could, could uh, use. And let me add that these changes in which Racism became connected with religion of the people, of the target. In this context, what happened also in all European countries were processes of fragmentation in which every group, which was more and more appearing as such, every group could be victim and guilty of racism. In the classical images of racism, Mainly, racism is the dominant group towards dominated people. But today, in many countries, you will find many groups that will say that they are victims of racism. And they are victims of racism not only from the dominant group, but also from other groups. And in the group where people are victims, you will always find or often find people that also are racist. I can give you a French... I, when I speak about France, it's just to illustrate what I say. In my country, in France, you have black people that are anti-Semitic, and you have Jews that are anti-black people, and anti-Arab, and, and, and you have uh, uh, Arab or Muslim people that are uh, anti-Jews, and so on. I mean, you have different groups, and racism is fragmented. 
and this is uh, uh, something very important, and it is so much fragmented that people say, don't forget in this image of fragmentation what we could call racism in reverse. Re the French will say anti-white racism. This is to say there is also an anti-white racism. This is what some people will say and consider as very important. I would not be so like that, but it, it exists, of course. So, fragmentation, religion, this changes the profile of the problem. And the last point is that as all these groups that develop in these processes of fragmentation have a strong, or try to have a strong identity, all these groups say, I want, as the members of this group, want to say, I want to be considered as a member of such or such group, which means that identities, as everybody knows, are a very important phenomenon in our societies, and that these identities themselves sometimes are racialized. That is to say, the members of a group say, please define me through the color of my skin. Don't, don't forget it. Maybe it does not mean anything else than discrimination, but please say that I am black. I cannot translate this perfectly in English, but I know the, the former president of a black movement in France, Patrick Lozès, and he wrote a book in which he says, I want people to say that I am noir, and please say noir, don't say black. Don't use English, because if you say black in French, black, it means that you don't want really to say that I am noir. Say noir. This is, so, but if people say I am noir or white or yellow or whatever, in a fragmented society, this means that there is a self-definition which includes physical dimensions. So, of course, this is not racism, but this makes the problem much more difficult than in the past, because in the past, usually, people, in order to fight against racism, did not use the color of their skin in order to fight against racism, or not so much. So this is the new landscape. And what I wanted to say about racism is that this new paysage, this new landscape, began to appear in the early 80s. This is for race. Racism. Now, anti-Semitism. At the end of World War II, there was very, very little space in Europe for anti-Semitism. People knew that it could not be anymore just one opinion, that it was a crime. Christians finished or were finishing with anti-Semitism. There was the Second Vatican Council from 1962 to 1965, that say the Catholic Church does not want to accept this attack towards Jews that says that Jews killed Jesus and these kind of things. So Catholic people were finishing, or there was a big decline at least, with anti-Semitism. So modern anti-Semitism was residual, or supposed to be residual. And this began to change strongly in the early 80s also, for many reasons, and of course with big differences from a country to another one. The first reason, maybe, was that Jews were, were considered as 
having some connections with symbolic or, more, or concrete connection with Israel, and that the state of Israel, which was uh, considered with very positive opinions during the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, was more and more criticized starting from the early 80s. The turning point here is maybe what happened in 1982 when the uh, Israeli army went to Lebanon uh, out of their country and they uh, let Christian uh, militias uh, massacre hundreds and maybe one or two thousand Palestinians in camps. Nobody says that the Israeli troops killed Palestinians, but everybody says that they let the Christian do it. So it was a shock in the public opinion. And there were other things that were also shocking. For instance, they did not obey when the United Nations says that they should go back in Israel and finish with occupation and so So I don't have time to be more precise, but it is a turning moment when the image of Israel dramatically changed. Before, Israel was David in front of Goliath, the small country that won the Six-Day War in 67. It was a wonderful country with uh, a wonderful people building a new culture and so on, with the kibbutz. The, the image was very positive. It was a country where, with wonderful secret services that could go to uh, Argentina and and bring uh, back to Israel uh, Eichmann to make a trial. I mean, many things were very positive for this country, and suddenly it was a country. It, uh, the image became dirty. And then there was the Intifada, and that is to say, David, David was no longer Israel, but the young Palestinian throwing stones in front of Goliath, the military, the army of the Israeli. So first of all, huge changes in the public opinion. But this is not all. At the very end of the 70s, new ideas, if I can say it like that, about Auschwitz and so on appeared in the public debate. It was called negationism. Some people used to say that the gas chambers never existed in Auschwitz. These were crazy ideas. But it was at the moment when nationalist movements were developing, big, big, were be beginning, it was the beginning of nationalist movements. And so these ideas were propagated also by extreme right. So, uh, for instance, this is a French example, in France, Jean-Marie Le Pen, the leader of the National Front, was very happy to promote the idea of the main negationist, the main person, it was a professor of literature for Risson who said that gas chambers did not exist. So these ideas who were very marginal became ideas connected with a more and more uh, a stronger and stronger political extreme right. This is the second point. But the main main point is not this. The main point is that the transformation among migrants in a certain number of countries made possible for a new anti-Semitism, and it was the expression that was used, to appear. What was happening is that in some countries, Germany, Belgium, France at the beginning, at least, 
In these countries, we did not have any more gastarbeiter or travailleurs immigrés, migrant workers coming to work and going back to their country. No, these people more and more stayed in the country, and not only stayed in the country, but they could have children, wife, family grouping. They became, one day or later, French citizens. They could become, it was later in Germany, German citizens and so on. And these people were victims of racism, as I told you, discrimination. These people were poor, most of them, or at least not rich. These people were located in very popular neighborhoods and so on. And these people sometimes began to consider that if they, was, if they were living in difficult situations, this was maybe a little bit connected with the Jewish issue. And some of them became anti-Semitic with two ways of saying that. First of all, some of these people say something like, we are in the country where we live like Palestinians in front of Israeli army. We are victims of the police. We are, we are poor people. We have all, there are a lot of controls and so on. So we, they identify themselves with a certain image of the Palestinian nation. And the second point is that among this population, as I told you before, Islam became more and more important. And for these people, sometimes, Islam was not only religion. Most of them, it was religion, no more. But for some of them, it was, to speak like Samuel Huntington, clash of civilization, war with Western countries. And who is the more... Uh, uh, extreme fighter of the West in front of Islam, the Jews that are in Israel. So some people were identifying themselves to Palestinian, other people were identifying themselves to Islam fighting against the West, and the West was the Jews in these images, and this made possible uh, the appearance and the development of some anti-Semitism among these populations. As you may know, I will say a few words about terrorism later, but all Islamic terrorists are deeply anti-Semitic, and, and this is connected with what I'm saying now. I will not say, I, I could be more precise, but I don't want to speak too much. What I just want to add is that it is fascinating to see that what, the classical anti-Semitism was declining. Catholic people were no longer anti-Semitic. And at that moment, a new anti-Semitism appeared among migrants or, or sons of migrants, but not only among Muslims. There is a, a small case, but it's a real one, which is connected with the so-called discoveries of an American professor, I don't remember his name, in New York in the early 90s, this professor, professor of history, said that Jews are guilty of trade slavery, of, of, of trade negrière. This is not true. I mean, the best American black historians say it's not true. But this idea came to France through the French Caribs, and you have among black people in France, some people say we hate Jews because, for two reasons, 
First of all, they are guilty of trade, uh, of trade slavery, and they want, which is not true, but they want to have a monopoly on historical suffering. They don't want anybody to say anything about anything else but the Shoah. So this is a, a, a discourse that you can hear sometimes. And so, and the last point, which is connected with everything I've been telling you, is that with Internet, social networks, and so on, something else developed, not only the possibility to use hatred and to develop it on networks, but also the idea that with Internet, we live in a culture where everything can be said. If I have one opinion, I can put it on the web and just like that. And nobody should say that I cannot do that. But you have people that say, no, you cannot co consider that if, if you say, for instance, that get chambers don't exist, it is not an opinion. It's something which is not true. It's not truth. So Jews, for some people, appear as those that don't let opinions circulate as they should. And you have, among young generations, a certain number of people that through internet, through this new digital culture, will hate Jews as a kind of obstacle to this new culture, on the one hand, and that we also hate Jews uh, because on internet, and this is a general phen another phenomenon, because on internet we have more and more possibility to develop paranoid uh, visions of life. The French call this complotism, plotism. I don't know if I can say it in English. The idea is that professors don't say the truth, journalists don't say the truth, politicians don't say the truth, and so on. Everything is plot. And, we, well, and who is plotting in general? The Jews. So <laughs> you, you will find this kind of thing. So what I want to say is that in the early 80s, here with anti-Semitism, something new reappeared in Europe, in a Europe where in the 50s or in the 60s, really it was clear that anti-Semitism was going to disappear, or it was strongly disappearing. This was my second point. The third point is terrorism. I have been working on terrorism in the early 80s. So what I studied was what I could call classical terrorism. What was classical terrorism? It was terrorism that you could study, let me quote again Ulrich Beck, in the category of methodological nationalism. That is to say, you had either leftist terrorism in some countries, either extreme right terrorism, sometimes in the same country. In Italy, in the 70s, you had both. Either what you could call regionalist or nationalist terrorism within a country, the Basque, maybe Irish terrorism, the Corse, Corsica in France, this kind of thing. And then, if it was not within a country, you had international terrorism, that is to say terrorism in name of the Palestinian movement. It's a long story, I have no time to, to be more precise. I would never say that the Palestinian movement is a terrorist movement, but it included some dimensions of terrorism. So, 
At that time, it was very difficult, it still is, but to propose a concept of terrorism. What I tried to do, I, I just want to say it here because things have changed, but it was difficult, and at that time, many articles, books, lectures, and so on, when they were dealing with terrorism, they started always with the same kind of sentence. We cannot define terrorism because somebody is a terrorist for you and a freedom fighter for me or the country. And this was true for many people, including international organizations. Because at the time when of, the cold, of the Cold War, of course, uh, uh, the Soviet on the one side and the American uh, on the other side could not accept to define the same people as terrorists. Sometimes there was some big tension. But my idea was to propose a concept which included two dimensions. On the one hand, terrorism as a tool, as a way to act, uh, um, as a mean in order to, uh, to get some results for a small cost, a very small cost. There is some terrorism here. <laughs> and on the, other, on the other hand, there is a connection between terrorism and artificiality of what is said. There is a connection. The more the discourse of the people is artificial, is far from any truth, the more the terrorists will be strong. For instance, I was studying Italian terrorism. These people were speaking in name of the working class. But the more they killed and the more they were acting, the less any worker, the, the less uh, they could have any audience among workers. No, no one would like to say that they were speaking in their name. I organized meeting between some terrorists in Paris, Italian terrorists in Paris, and real trade unionists from Italy. And the trade unionists, real workers, said to the terrorists, you speak in our name, but you cannot do that. We don't like violence. We don't, we don't, our problems will not be solved by killing people. So the more terrorism is abstract, it's a discourse far from reality, the more it is an idea, the more it is, you can call it really terrorism. So this was my idea. But then things began to change. And in fact, they began to change, not in Europe, but in this, at the same moment as what I said for Europe, 82, 83. The first important element of what you can call not classical terrorism, but global terrorism, the first uh, moment were in Lebanon in 1982, where you had very important attacks, terrorist attacks, against the French army, against the American army, and people at that time did not understand. Only a few politicians who, know, who knew could understand. But the general, the newspapers and so did not understand. Something new was beginning. Terrorism was no longer international or within a nation state. It was connected with religion. It was connected with the Iranian revolution. It was connected with Syrian uh, problems. It was connected with the birth of Hezbollah in the south of uh, Lebanon. Something new was beginning. I have no time to be precise. And this new terrorism, this global terrorism, became stronger and stronger. 
there are a certain number of events could illustrate what I say, but there was a, the highest moment of this new terrorism <coughs> happened in 2001 with September 11. Global terrorism, that is to say. <coughs> people who have nothing to do with the American society, they don't live in the U.S., coming from abroad. Their life, you don't know exactly, in, some of them are born in a state, others are born in another state. They are fighting not in order to take the control of a state. They have a very general uh, vision. And what is important, you have to call this terrorism. But my concept was defeated because in all the world, many people were saying they are right. Many people were considering that this was not artificial, that this, this terrorism could meet real feelings among many people, including in our popular neighborhoods in, in a country like this one or in, in France. This was a new terrorism, a global terrorism, even if it has some aspects that were classical. For instance, Al-Qaeda was structured in a very pyramidal uh, fashion at the time. But then things changed, and three main tendencies appeared after 2001. To be brief, first tendency, let us say it like that, back to the society in which people live. That is to say, if you take Madrid, March 2004, or London, July 2005, those people that committed attack were living in the country. They were not like September 11, coming from um, come, uh, abroad. But they did not have any idea of, taking, uh, uh, of, of fighting in order to take the state power, no. They wanted to express hatred, this was clear, and maybe to modify the, um, the, um, the policy of the country uh, towards uh, Iraq. They wanted... Spain, or they wanted England not to fight anymore with Bush uh, in, in, in Iraq. But out of that, they, want, they, di they did not accept the war against terrorism at, at that time. But out of that, they, were, they did not have goals within the country where they were acting and, and living. That's the first point. Then you add a second tendency which was sometimes called, and this was not a, a good expression, lone wolf attacks. That is to say, people that act by themselves because they know what they have to do, they don't need any contact, any relationship with any pyramidal uh, organization somewhere. No, they know that they must do something, kill Jews, uh, kill, uh, destroy some people, and so on. So this was said, for instance, about recent uh, killings in France. Mera, this guy who in 2012 killed three or four militaries, and then two or three days after in Toulouse killed uh, three young boys and girls uh, going out of a Jewish school and a professor. So people say, ah, he's a lone mole. It was said also for those people at, uh, in Boston for the marathon, and it was said, and this is very interesting, because it's not only Islam or Islamism, which, which is at stake. It was said also, as far as Breivik was at stake in Norway, extreme right terrorism. We killed some 80 people, something like that. So this was the second point. 
The truth is that, and I now I, I forget the extreme right, but as far as Islamic attack were at stake, the truth is that a long time ago, after, a long time after, you understand that these lone wolves are not so much lone wolves. And if you want to understand what they did, you must, it's clear that they have networks, etc. So, and then it became clear that if you want um, to understand something, you must to understand how these people became terrorists. And I will say a few words about that. But I just want, before that, say a last point. The third tendency after September 9-11, uh, the third tendency is that now global terrorism is connected with not real states, but you can call, I don't know if it is English, proto-states or quasi-states like Daesh. Daesh is not a real state, but it is more than an organization. It's something, it's difficult to, to define it. And maybe one day we shall have the same thing in Libya, and maybe one day we shall have the same thing with, uh, in sub, uh, sub-Saharan Africa with uh, Boko Haram. So what I want to say is that the tendency is the connection with territories and powers exi- existing in some territories. Now I want to say a few words. So my main point was that all this started again in the early 80s, but what I, I think it's important after what happened in France to explain a little bit more on how people become terrorists in countries like Belgium, France, Spain, England, and so on, with, of course, big differences. There are, from my point of view, two main processes. The first one, which is a more obvious one, is when you have people from migrant uh, origin, people that have lived a very difficult time. I don't say that to say that, uh, it's just to explain, it's not to forgive. These people have been living uh, in a family where the father did not have any job, there was no money, uh, they, didn't, they, they could not be good uh, at school, they lived in a very poor neighborhood, uh, sometimes they be- became delinquent, sometimes they went to jail, and jail was a place where they met not only people that transformed small delinquency into big criminality, but also jail was sometimes a place where they met uh, Islamist uh, um, imams and people like that that explain them something. And so, so a process which is, for sociologists, very obvious. You start in these poor suburbs and you have the feeling that you don't have space in this society and there is a moment when you find a meaning in your life and this meaning is offered by radical Islam. That's the first process. Very easy to understand. But if you look at those people that go to Syria today in order one day to come back and use terrorist tools, you are very surprised. The French people were absolutely surprised one day when they saw on TV a young guy doing the more terrible, cruel things in uh, Syria or Syria or Iraq, I don't remember. This guy was from a very French family from a small village in Normandy, a village where you never meet any migrant. So what happens with those young people, and you have a lot of (laughs) girls, teenagers, 
that also do that. What happens that makes these people who have nothing to do with the first sociological description that I give you, that makes them terrorists one day? And here you must understand that these people have the feeling that they live in a society which, is, which has no meaning, which is not interesting, which there is no vision, no future, nothing important. They want to give a meaning to their existence, and the society does not offer anything. Uh, so families may be a good family. It's not a problem, an economic problem. They are going to the lycée, to the high school. Yes. But they want to give a meaning to their existence. And sometimes they don't want to become terrorists. They just want, I don't know if I can say it in English, an initiation, good, uh, an initiatic travel to Syria or Iraq. They also consider sometimes that those men that go, that become terrorists, but they don't call them terrorists, those men that give their life for their ideas, these are real men. These men are very real conviction. I mean, you know, so all these processes through which people try to give a meaning to their life, and they find this solution. You have many other solutions to give a meaning to your life. But this is one solution. Sometimes they find it on internet. Sometimes they find it because there is a good friend at school that explains them what to do and so on. And then some networking. It is very easy, or it was very easy a few months ago, to go from France or Belgium to Syria through Turkey. Very, very easy. And to be in touch with the people that will uh, organize everything. So what I wanted to say, and this is very important, is that if we want to understand the trajectories of these new people that become one day terrorists, you must start, on the one hand, from the suburbs, the popular neighborhoods, uh, the all the problems of migration, to say it very briefly, on the one hand. But on the other hand, and this is true for maybe 10 or 20 percent of those people, you must take into account the problem of meaning in, in, a, in our societies. At that stage, the first process is more important than the second. And for example, everything that we know about those people that committed terrorist attacks recently in Paris, they belong to the first group, migrants. But we know that many people are in Syria now, and that one day they will maybe come back and, and do uh, things like that. So <clears throat> I wanted to say that. And as you begin to understand, all these problems I have been dealing with tonight, anti-Semitism, racism, terrorism, there is a lot of connection. There are distinct problems, distinct issues. But when we discuss evil, there are connections. I would like to say a very few words, because it's not as interesting, I think, but it's important, about what we could call radical rights, nationalist rights. Because here, also, the main point is that in some countries in Europe, this phenomenon developed or began to develop in the early or mid-80s also. And this is true, of course, in my country with the National Front. The National Front was created in 1972. But it was a very, very small group of some extremists. It became a political force in 1983, more or less. If you look to other countries, not exactly the same year, but at the same historical moment, you will find these kind of processes 
in Austria, maybe you know the name of Haider, the leader of the FPE. Uh, uh, he became the leader in 1986, and this became a very important party. The Vlaams Bloc was created in uh, Flanders in 1978, but it became important after. They changed their name. Now they are called Vlaams Belang. It's the same. And so, and in many European countries, you have this phenomenon. I would like to say, make just a few remarks. First of all, the idea of a nation is not necessarily a radical extreme right idea. If you take the Scottish case of the Catalan case, it's difficult to call them extreme right. I would not personally. So let us forget this kind of phenomenon. So what happens is that if you deal with right-wing extreme uh, uh, radical uh, nationalism, most of them are more or less racist, anti-Semitic, xenophobic. They want a closed society, an homogeneous nation. They hate migrants. They hate Islam. They are usually anti-European. They criticize globalization a lot. But they are not all the same, and this is what I would like to, to say. If you look, maybe you could consider the eastern part of Europe and the western part of Europe. If you look at the eastern part of Europe, they are rather classical. They have something to do with the same ideologies that were so strong between the two world uh, wars. But if you look at the western part of Europe, it is very surprising. Some of these parties are culturally was rather modern. An extreme case was the case of the Netherlands, an homosexual, Pim Fortune, who, who said that he was an homosexual. He was assassinated, but he could be the leader of an extreme right uh, movement. Even the French Front National is not so archaic, if I can say it like that. Not so archaic. Uh, Marine Le Pen, uh, the leader, tries to be open-minded to some aspects of, for instance, uh, 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 homosexuality. So my first point is that all these movements are not the same. My second uh, point is that this movement have different kinds of relationship with violence. And this is maybe the more important. In some cases, these movements are violent. If you look at the Golden Dawn in Greece, they are violent. They killed and so on. But in other cases, the more they want to be elected or to get access to the state power, the more they will fight against violence, not accept it. And it is a case, for instance, with the French Front National. The, the, when you have extreme right violence in France today, it's not good for the National Front because it means that they are not respectable, that they, that they want to get access to the power with dirty tools and so on. No, they don't like this. So it's, you, I, don't, I don't have time to, to be more precise, but it is very important to understand that, of course, it's a general tendency, more and more nationalisms in all Europe, 
but with huge differences between the West and the East in Europe, and also be, between, with the relationship with mm, violence. I look at the clock, time is, is turning, so I will go to my conclusion, so, if I can. So, what I wanted to tell you tonight is that we have been in Europe living now more or less 30 years during which we have been living the rising tendencies to different aspects of hatred and of evil. And this is also, this is not only something that happened in different countries. This is something that is connected with the European idea, from my point of view. And I have no solution, but my idea is that it's the Europe itself which is in a crisis, which is not able to really face these tendencies that after that are faced country by country. There is a moral crisis of Europe. There is a political crisis of uh, Europe. And, <clears throat> and what makes things very difficult to, to deal with is that this crisis, you must analyze it from below, state by state, by also taking into account the fact that Europe is connected with the world. We have the immigrant issue, we have the terrorist issue, and so on. So all these issues are not only European. And my point is that if Europe is not able to behave more strongly in front of these problems, each state will, tr will try to do something, but the results will be very, very negative or very, very poor. I have no time to be more precise, but this is what I wanted to say. So thank you for your patience. Well, Michel, thank you for a, a wonderfully, uh, really stimulating and wide-ranging and very textured um, talk, um, which I think will have uh, stimulated a whole set of thoughts and reflections uh, amongst us. We have some time um, to uh, um, have a discussion, to put some questions to you, which you've kindly agreed to take. So um, I shall invite questions, please, from the floor, upstairs and downstairs. Um, usual stuff. Keep it short and sweet, please. Um, wait for the roving mic and say who you are and what you're doing. And um, I'll take it from there. So who'd like to kick off with a, a question to our speaker? Uh, there are two persons here. Yes, excellent. Please speak rather slowly so that I'm sure that they understand what you want to say. Bonsoir. Professor, I am a retired uh, Eurocrat, as they are known here. I worked in Brussels for many, many years, and so I'm fairly familiar with some of the topics you've mentioned. My question is this. Are you concerned by the fact that at the moment, in France, very respectable publishers are bringing out again works by pro-fascist writers such as Céline, Lucien Rebaté, Les Décombres, Pierre Dreux-La Rochelle, and that next year, 
in Germany and in France, very respectable publishers are bringing out new editions of Mein Kampf. Thank you. We are not so many people, so I can say something which is just between us. What you ask is a kind of family story for me. Because on the one hand, my former uh, brother-in-law is one of the publishers of Robate. And I'm not happy with this. It was not necessary. And my sister, Annette, who is one of the, at the world level, the best, one of the best specialists in all these terrible things, going from Auschwitz to Nuremberg, she made a very, she has been very, very critical, and I support her, when she was asked about Mein Kampf being published in France. Now I will be a little bit more precise, because it's a very interesting story. As you may know, Mein Kampf belongs to Hitler. So the rights belong to the family, I don't know exactly whom, but it was not free. But within a few months, it will be, or it is still now, I don't know, it's going to be free. As you say, anybody can publish Mein Kampf without having to pay. So there is a French publisher, Fayard, who said, it's a very good publisher, I published books there, so. So, Fayard said one day, okay, we are going to publish Mein Kampf, but we are going to publish it with explanations, notes, very serious historians will uh, explain, and so on and so on. And my sister Annette was invited uh, on a TV program, and, and, and I forget to say something, and they said, to be clean, we are not going to make money with this. The money will be given to some Jewish organization. So my sister Annette was invited in a big TV program, and she said something like, just imagine, you are going to the railway station. You want to buy a book uh, for the train. You go in the, you know, in this place where you can, and you, you can buy my income, like that. You don't buy it, of course. But you go in the train. And in the train, the guy in front of you is reading Mein Kampf, and so on. And she said, if people really want to know what is in Mein Kampf, they can find it. It's not difficult. You can. So it is not necessary to do that. So she explains this. She said, because it makes, and people will buy it. They will not, it it's, it's a very bad book. It's very difficult to read it. So people will not read it. So it will make just the, Image that now Mein Kampf is part of your education. So she said that. Then the president of the more important Jewish organization, which is called Le CRIF, uh, Representative Council for a Jewish Association, something like that, the president said, oh, she's right. Uh, I will not accept uh, any money coming from Mein Kampf. Just, you know, Jews, Jews organization receive. So, so, the, so today... I don't know what they are going to do. I think that they will publish it, but it is a dirty story. So I am not in favor to publish Hitler. Now it's more, comp and I was not in favor of Rebatte. Now if you say Céline, it's something else. Because on the one hand, Céline is a disgusting guy. This is my, uh, I'm not the only one that says. But on the other side, on the other side many people say he's a great writer. So here, it's not only a question of anti-Semitism, it's also a question of literature. 
And here you, be, you enter in other discussions. So it's not exactly the same. Thank you. Any more questions? Yes. Um, gentleman with his hand up on the, on the edge there. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much for your talk. I just want to make a criticism of the word evil that you're using. Uh, that is a very childlike interpretation of the world. And it, it does not, uh, there's no debate or analysis that can be done around this actual word. Uh, it does, uh, there are many other words that can be used, and also um, there are d definitions of religion that can be interpreted, but not when the word uh, evil is used. It's just a, a closed door once that interpretation is done. Do you feel that it is people that do use the word evil? Uh, with holding a proper debate on this subject of terrorism, racism, and religion. Thank you very much. Well, three or four years ago, I published, uh, five, no, five or six years ago, I published a book in France. The title was Neuf Leçons de Sociologie, Nine Lessons of Sociology. Nothing to do with evil. Then I met the publisher, of the direct, one of the directors of uh, Polity Press, and he told me, Michel, I would like to translate your book, but for some commercial reasons, I will not publish the nine lessons. I will only publish, publish the one on terrorism, the one on racism, the one on anti-Semitism, and, so. and I just said, evil. He said, uh, yes. I said, well, we have the title. So I had the title, but then, and now I, I, now I answer to your question. No, because this was just a, a private conversation like that. So I thought, well, now I must write something to explain what do I mean by evil. So I wrote a piece, maybe 20 pages or 30 pages, in order to say, maybe we could transform this word. I agree with what you said, but with this word, which, which has a, 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 a long philosophical history and historically we maybe we can transform it into a concept a sociological concept so what i did i have no time and i cannot do it right now but i try to propose a, a, a sociological concept of evil you can disagree it's your absolute it's your, your right so but i think that uh, and i will say it now differently I am a sociologist. I know that the words, my vocabulary is full of words which are used also not only by sociologists. I, when I say anti-Semitism, when I say terrorism, when I say racism, these are uh, ordinary words. I mean, everybody uses these words. You, you find them in the newspapers, in the political life. In the, so my duty is to say, let us see if I can give a sociological meaning to these words. So your criticism for evil, I did not say evil so much tonight. Your, not so much, not so much. I mean, I was not proposing, no, if, if Maurice wants to invite me again to give a talk on con conceptualization of evil, I will come back. But it was not, so, but all our vocabulary, you could have said exactly the same with terrorism with racism, and so on. Because we use too quickly the same words 
with a sociological definition in mind or not, and it is not always clear. So uh, what I wanted to do tonight, this is to give you my answer now, what I wanted to do tonight is to show you as much as possible that something strange happened in Europe, that in Europe in the early 80s we had all this phenomenon reappearing and being transformed. This was my more important idea. It was... I could even say it was historical more than sociological, but I tried to introduce some. But it, it was rather empirical what I said tonight. You can criticize this or that. So my answer to your point is we need time if we want to consider any important word that we use. What you said about evil is true also. It's for many other words. And there is no reason, from my point of view, not to accept the fact that a sociologist can take a word which exists and give to that word uh, a sociological meaning. So I try to, to give a sociological meaning. You can disagree, but this is what we do with many other words. Thank you. We have just a few minutes um, left. Um, we'll try and squeeze in a little bit more. I'd like to draw things to a close by 8 o'clock. Um, the lady there. Thank you very much. That was very interesting. Um, it was a, a bonus to get a, a Beaufrère joke. Um, it's one of many features of French culture that I find endearing. You make jokes about brother-in-laws rather than mother-in-laws. Um, I shared the misgivings about evil. I'm a public health doctor who's been dabbling in social psychology, so I'm really so sensitized to the way that words can be lifted from a speaker and used in a different way. Describing somebody as evil is the path to othering, to dehumanization. It, it is, for me, a big problem. However, despite the difficulty with words, I'm trying to use them myself. I think my question to you is really, looking back to the mid-80s, I'm not sure that I see such a clear break between the old racism and the new racism, but what I see is starting to happen there was the spread of neoliberal ideas, and I wonder if you think those have had a role in undermining the sentiments and the structures of solidarity. Thank you. Well, I will take the two main aspects of what you said. If I had more time, I would have developed another idea. I would have said, if we want to understand these processes where evil appears, to use the word, just one second, it could be very important to start with the idea that these processes combine two aspects, subjectivation and desubjectivation. That is to say, Maybe people, other people would say deshumanization. But I would say subject, that is to say, the fact that people, desubjectivation, are less and less able to be subject, that is to say, to master their own life, to be responsible. And, that they, and the fact that one day they, be, they have the feeling, subjectivation, that they can again be master of their life. So these processes of desubjectivation and subjectivation, it's uh, um, through this tool, this analytical tool, you can understand very, I think it's very useful to understand better the trajectories of some people. And for me, evil 
is what happens when desubjectivation is uh, extreme. That is to say, when you don't consider that any other people can be a subject, when you, and so, and so. So, now, I'm not sure I understand well, but if you want me to compare the old classical physical racism and the new, no, it was not the idea. I thought you wanted to say that there was not such a big difference between the, the two. It, it was not the idea. That, that was merely a preamble to my observation that perhaps the, the historical difference on pulling together these different um, manifestations is actually spreading neoliberal thought, which weakens the sentiments and the structures of solidarity. It fragments people. Okay, but if this was true, I would have said, I think that I would have say that things changed in the 90s. And, or what happened is that things changed in the 80s, from my point of view. And in the 80s, maybe liber, uh, extreme neoliberal or liberal ideas developed in a country like England. Mrs. Thatcher, when, when was she elected, Mrs. Thatcher? 79. 79. But in my country, it was exactly the... We had these problems, and we had the very contrary of Mrs. Thatcher, with Mr. Mitterrand, that before be becoming president did not have any idea of Marxism and did not have any sympathy for revolution. But when he was elected president, he decided to learn the language, the Marxist language, to deal with communists. And he asked Régis Debré, maybe you know who, who was Régis Debré, he asked him to come to the Élysée, just in order to sometimes hear something about Cuba, uh, Castro, and the revolution, uh, this kind of thing. So, in my country, you cannot say that the 80s were the, were, and these phenomenon have happened. This does not mean that you are not right, but this means that you cannot say, I have a, a main explanation, which is neoliberal. At least not. Of course, it has some role, I believe, in the acceleration, amplification, and so on. But I think that, and, well, we should also, I didn't, could not do that, but we should also discuss what happened in all these countries in the Middle East, for instance. But maybe you could say they were destroyed by neoliberalism, but they were destroyed by uh, also war and, and other uh, important things. So I accept the idea that I should have said something about neoliberalism or so, but I would not make it something that determined what happened in, in my Thank you. Um, I'll try and take. I'll take three more questions, and that'll be it. I'm going to go to the back of the room, and I'll just. Uh, sorry, and then have I cruelly overlooked at the back uh, on the top row? Uh, gentleman in the green jumper. <coughs> then I'll decide. Sorry. So back. Yes, gentleman at the back first with the mic. Hello. Thank you very much for your talk. Um, a theme that I saw in your talk was that all of these various uh, evils, um, charge a word that is, but um, they, they are all about a free society being used against itself. So terrorism, you know, um, people are, if you, if you permit them to buy explosives and you permit them to harm people, they can harm people. And f I'm thinking back to um, Hitler's rise to power before World War II. They were democratically elected and then they banned all the other political parties. So I'm wondering if you could comment a bit more on that and how we've dealt with this 
tension between restricting people's freedoms and allowing them freedoms, while not allowing them to harm other people. I'm not sure I understood perfectly what you meant. So you want me to compare what happened with this terrorist group and what happened when the state with people elected behave? I, I'm, I'm trying to understand how, um, how we can uh, prevent people's freedom from harming other people. So pe if people are free enough, they can harm other people. However, if, they are, if we restrict their freedoms, then that can harm them as well. So you have a tension between allowing people to do things and allowing people to harm other people. Well, the classical answer is the state and the monopoly, as Max Weber used to say, the monopoly that is given to the state for a legitimate violence, the law and so on. So this is the main answer. If you want uh, uh, to avoid... If I, I'm not sure I understand very well your question, but if you want to avoid this terrorism, uh, the possibility of terrorism, you must trust the, ta the, the state. I don't know any other political way to, to deal with this. Is it your point, or, it's, or I am far from your point? It's, 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 it's a good answer. Thank you. <laughs> right. jump up, up upstairs? Um, somebody caught. Yes, the gentleman in the green jumper had caught my eye earlier. Hello, I'm um, working at the LSE, uh, and I'm Belgian. Uh, Nobody's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and um, if, if we think about the evolution of the last 30 years and related to racism and terrorism, I have the impression that political Islam has uh, come up uh, in, a, in a very important way. I find it a little bit strange because in Europe we have known... Uh, um, Religious, re religion, uh, we've seen that religion goes, has gone down with the outcome of, of science, and, and science still go, comes up, but still, uh, certainly in, in, in the Arabic world uh, and in the Near East, uh, religion has a, a stronger place to, uh, in society today than 30 years, I think. And I don't know, understand, really understand why. I have the impression that left forces... Uh, in the past, in the 80s, and, and uh, they uh, canalized the majority of the anti-imperialist feelings, and that they don't do this today. That today, anti-imperialist anti feelings coming from the war in Iraq, etc., are captured by uh, political Islam. And, and what's the? I don't understand what's the force behind that. And, and, and how do you see the, this evolution and the role of this political Islam? I, I, my answer is, very, is a very sociological answer. What I know, I have read a lot on this issue, but I don't know everything, so maybe I'm not perfectly right. But what I know is that all these people that become terrorists at the very beginning of their career have nothing or almost nothing to do with Islam. That the, the, a bad image would be these people belong to a big Muslim community and f starting from this community they become radical Islamists and killers. This, would, this is not true if you look at the trajectories which are known. These people at the beginning don't know anything about Islam. And as I told you, some of them are converted. 
So they don't know anything. And Islam is not the point of departure. Islam is the point of arrival. And even at that level, they don't know so much about Islam. I was listening recently uh, to a very, very good specialist. His name is Kosro Kavar. He's really one of the key anthropologists that know about these people. And he was explaining that these people have read only two, I don't know the English word, surat, two chapters of the Koran. No more. No more. So, and so maybe, and if you read uh, what a, a, an American psychiatric has written six or eight years ago, Mark Sageman, he said also something like that. So religion is not the, the source of the, of the phenomenon. Religion is something which is arriving at the very end of the process. So it's a limited, if we are dealing with terrorism, it's a limited number of people and here there is another point, but I did not discuss it, but as somebody was speaking as, as, as a psychologist or social psychologist, it's very important. How is it that sociologically you have so many people that could become terrorists, but that in the real life you have such a limited number of people that do it? And I am not sure it has to do with the religion. So it's not a full answer to to what you said, but this is the key point. Religion uh, is not the source of these problems. The, there is a, a demand, a social demand. These people want to exist, they want to give a meaning to their existence, and so on. And one day they find what they find. And so, but um, it is true that at in the same time, in societies like uh, European societies, there is less and less Christianity. There is less and less uh, religious uh, practic practices. It is true. But we are discussing with different uh, groups in the population. Um, did I answer to your point? Not really. I'm so bad tonight. <laughs> Michel, if it's okay with you, I propose we take one more question. Of course. Is that all right? Um, I shall reward the gentleman up there for his tenacity and then the blue jumper. Um. Uh, thank you very much. My name is Yazan. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Kent. Uh, just uh, listening to your uh, categorization of terrorism, it's occurred to me the example of the Argon, who massacred over 95 British people at the King David Hotel in Jerusalem back in 1946. And it was like the Twin Tower at its time. Would you consider this, or would you assimilate this as the Madrid and London bombing people came from within? Or, because it was Palestine at the time, people traveled and kind of massacre who was doing the mandate or the occupation at the time. Thank you. Well, it is exactly what I said before. When we, when we start discussing terrorism, the first idea that appears is that it is difficult to propose a concept of terrorism because some people will consider this as terrorism and other people will say, no, it's normal fight, it's so. 
The problem is maybe it is not possible to, to, to have a concept of terrorism. Maybe. But if it is like that, then there is no international law. You, you have no, it's not, be, because if you want to have an international law, you, meet, you must be, you must agree. And so my answer to your point is, it depends on which side you consider this uh, terrorist attack. Some people will consider it as a wonderful moment uh, in a war, and other people will say I, as a, as a ter terrible and terrorist moment. I only know one case, in, I have read a lot on terrorism, I only know one case where a terrorist actor says, I am a terrorist. It was a, a, a man called Savinkov at the end of the 19th century in Russia. Uh, so, but, and this guy published a book, the title in, in, in English should be something like Memories of a Terrorist. And he, he called himself, because for him terrorist was only uh, a method, a method, a way of action. So if you say terrorism, just a way of action, there is no problem. You can say that in your case, it was terrorism. But we all know that the world is loaded with so many symbolic, political, historical elements that it is never only a pure instrumental a tool, not never only this. And then, so, maybe we shall never find a good definition on which we could agree because the perspectives are opposed. I tried to propose something, as I told you, in the 80s. It worked sometimes, but it did not work every time, always. So. Splendid. Well, I fear that I have to draw things to a close now. We have enough um, meat and substance in what is you have said already and the discussions that you have stimulated, really, to be pretty sure that uh, sequel events in the coming months and years if you'll be kind enough to come back and share your thoughts with us again, um, there'll be a great draw. We've had a fantastic 90-odd uh, minutes with you, Michel, this evening. And really, thank you very much for coming to talk to us and share your thoughts.